Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. I'd like to also read after that passage, just very briefly, from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, and John 16, 23 through 28. I'll remind you of those passages in a, in a second. So let's all stand uh, for the reading of God's word. First in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, and just reading that verse. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. And now turning to the gospel of John, chapter 1, read verses 14 through 18. John 1, verses 14 through 18, John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now turning to chapter 16. John 16, verse 23 through verse 28. John 16, verses 23 through 28. John 16, verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." Please be seated. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we do come as your children now, and we come in the name of Christ, in the name that is the name of salvation, the one who has opened the way to heaven for sinners such as ourselves the one who has made us acceptable in your sight, the one through whom we enjoy the forgiveness of sins, the one whom you sent into this world for us. But you've also granted to us your spirit and your word, and we pray, O Father, that you would speak to us through your word and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and show us those thoughts that fall short of thoughts that are worthy of you, our Father. And show us those ways that are unworthy of you as God, our Father. Help us in all these things. Show us a better way. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in in the mornings when I preach, I'm going to be beginning a a new series uh, on the Lord's Prayer. And so I think the rest is pretty obvious. We're going to begin at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer uh, with this preface. And it's a preface that perhaps uh, we are too inclined to read over very quickly, to move past it and say, well, of course, God is our, our Father. The very beginning of our denomination began in a, in a controversy of doctrine. And what J. Gresham Machen highlighted was that it was all too common to simply tell anybody in the world that God is our Father, He's the Father of us all. And he shows in his book, In Christianity and Liberalism, why that is a colossal mistake. That the only ones who can name God as our Father are those who have Christ as their Savior. And that's actually where we begin this morning, is is to understand that the way that we have access to the Father is is through Christ, and we do not want to uh, promulgate or to to push a religion that encourages access to God without a blood-stained mercy seat. As a Puritan said, I want nothing of a religion that has a, a bloodless mercy seat. It must come through Christ. And that's where we begin with the question, how is it that we can call God our Father? You know the answer. And the answer is because of the Son. It's the Son who has revealed the Father. In fact, it is fair to say this is why he came. We're ready to say that Christ came to the world to save sinners such as ourselves. That's a correct answer. But we could say among the right answers that we could summarize it this way. Why did the Son come into the world? It was to reveal the Father. That's why we read that passage from the preface or the prologue to the Gospel of John in verse 18. And there it says, no one has ever seen God. No one. Except for one. The only begotten. The eternal Son of God who's at the Father's side. It says, He has made Him known. Now this is put in the context of verse 17, which says the law uh, was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law gave testimony to to grace and truth, but it was embodied in Jesus Christ. That Moses is not the epitome of the revelation of God and all that it was and as great as it was. Moses did not see God in the way that we see him in Christ. That Christ has come and in Christ we see what Moses could not see. We receive from Christ what Moses cannot give. No one has appeared like Christ. Nobody has been sent like this. Nobody has been sent like him. No one has ever seen God in his unveiled glorious presence, not even Moses. If you remember what happens in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses did ask, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. And God says, that's not going to happen. That's a paraphrase, but that's what he says. That's not going to happen. If that happens, you'll die. You cannot look upon my face. It will kill you. I'll let you see the very outskirts of my back as my hand shields you in the rock to protect you. Moses did not see God in the way that we're talking about here. Not like this. The only begotten Son of God, God's one and only Son, who resides at the Father's side, is co-equal with the Father. He has made him known. And what's interesting about that, that verb that's used there, he's made known, the Father, it's, it's a verb that means that he is fully equipped to explain him. That this one can truly interpret him. 
If you need someone to come and give you a clear, full, accurate account of who God is, this is your man. That he is able to do this. He is able to reveal the Father. And among those reasons, it begins in verse 1. Why? Because he was with God in the beginning. This is God. God the Son. So he has come to reveal the Father. To explain him. To describe him. To show him. To show who the Father is. And so what has he shown us? What has he revealed? Well, he's revealed the Father as one who loves. Now, John Owen, in his, the Puritan, in his book, Communion with God, said, this is an amazing thing. If it were not for the Son, we'd be tempted to think only wrathful things about God. We would assume that the Father is filled with wrath and anger. We would never know God like this. This is why Christ had to come and to, and to show us who the Father is in his heart. And we're reminded in Scripture that the whole scheme of salvation begins where? Not with the sending of the Son. It's far before that. It precedes that. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We see love in his sending the son, but that's not where the gospel begins. It begins in the father's love that was prior to the sending of the son. It's that love that precedes the sending of the son. That this was the eternal plan of redemption that resides in the bosom of the Father. This was always, always his plan to send his son. In fact, that is the measure of love of a father who would be willing to send his one and only son, the son that he loves. Do you remember what happened in Genesis 22? God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son, the son that you love, Isaac, on this mountain. And Abraham shows himself willing to, to go to this to this end, assuming, Hebrews 11 tells us, that God would raise him from the dead. And just as he's ready to send the knife, the angel stops him, and what does God say to him? He says, now I know. Now I know that you fear me. In the gospel, what we're supposed to see is that God does not withhold his one and only son, the son that he loves. And we could say in response, now we know. Now we know that you, that you love us. And Romans 8.32 makes that clear. It says God is for us. He's not against us. God is, God is for us. How do we know that? Because he did not withhold his son. He did not spare his only son. And so he sends his son. And, and what does his son do? He reconciles us to God. Romans 5 verse 10 says that when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That reconciliation assumes that there was a conflict. There's a need to restore something that is broken. There's a need to resolve tension where there's animosity and enmity. That's exactly why Christ came. He came with terms of peace between us and God. He came to bring reconciliation between God and us for all those who would trust in him. That he died our death. He paid the penalty of our sin. He exhausted in himself all the wrath of God. He wiped away anything and everything there would be an obstacle between us and God that he is the one who has opened the way for sinners, that all who believe in Christ are forgiven of their sins, are made acceptable in the sight of God in that perfect righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. We have peace with God. And so we can say, along with John Calvin, that God is no longer first and foremost our judge. He is first and foremost our father. That's what we need to believe. 
is that through Christ we have this access to God as our Father. See, if I ask you, who is the one to whom we pray? And how how do we pray to him? This is where the Shorter Catechism is really helpful. That we're praying to God. You must always remember that. Never forget, we're praying to God. And so we come to him with holy reverence. But we're praying to our Father. And so we come to him with confidence. It's always both these things together. We never forget that we're praying to God. Some people do. You hear some prayers, like, say, at a youth camp. And things get pretty irreverent. They get really informal. Hey, Dad, it's me. I've heard prayers open that way. Maybe not just from kids, even. But there's a flippancy to that. There's something about that you are forgetting. Who are we praying to? This is God. But then you hear the prayers of others, and you realize they're absolutely terrorized even to speak to God. They're frozen. They're immobilized in their fear. That's not the fear of God. That's dread. What have they forgotten? That they're praying to their father. It's both these things. And as we think of the latter, that some people seem to think that they, they approach God in this way, but they're really approaching in unbelief, like he's going to punish me. He doesn't really love me. He doesn't want to hear from little old me. Do you know who that makes happy? It makes Satan happy. He wants to whisper in our ears, your father in heaven, he is angry with you. He is an implacable God. You will never please him. He is disappointed in you. He doesn't really love you. He's waiting to crush you. And so we draw back out of suspicion, out of fear and doubt. That grieves the father. Now, here's the irony in all of it. We witness to our our friends who are not Christians. We witness to them constantly. And what do we say to them? Stop running from God. Stop running away from him. Go to him. And you'll find one who loves you and one who forgives you and accepts you. And you'll finally have peace. That's what we say to them. But we don't even listen to our own advice. And we sin against our father. What do we do? We run away. We don't talk to him. We ignore him. Because we don't believe in his love. We fix upon his terrible majesty. We think of the severity of his justice, this white, hot righteousness of God. That's all we think upon. And we completely forget the gospel, that this is the God who is just and the justifier of all those who are trusting in Christ. We should be fixing upon his love, the love that he promises to pour out upon his children, that love he has already poured out upon us in his son. The father loves you, and he doesn't have to be convinced to give you good gifts. That's why we read this passage in John 16, where Christ has repeatedly said to his apostles, just ask anything, and I'll ask the Father, and he'll give it to you. Just ask. It'll be given to you from the Father. Just ask, and I'll intercede for you. But here's the one time he says, but I'm not saying going to ask the Father on your behalf on this. And his apostles said, what? What are you saying? In John 14, Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, you've been with me all this time. If you see me, you see the Father. I don't need to go begging the Father to be good to you. I don't need to go to him and change his mind. We agree on this very 
thing that we and the Father, I and the Father are one. We're one in will. We want the same things. We love the same things and the same people. We agree on the same things. We have promised to do the same things. We do the same things. I don't need to ask the Father on your behalf on this because he loves you already. I don't need to ask the Father to love you. He does love you. Go to him yourself in my name and he will pour out these blessings. That's what Christ is saying. That's the Father he came to reveal. To show the loving heart of our Father. Think of this Sermon on the Mount. Christ says you don't need to be anxious about all these things. Why? Does he say, because I know you, you need these things? That's not what he says. He says, your father in heaven knows that you need these things. He'll give them to you. He says, go to that secret place and pray. Why? Because your father is waiting for you there. This is the father who is the cause of the gospel, the very fountain of love from which the gospel flows. This is the God who predestined us In love, this is a father who sent his son in love. This is the father who has freely and graciously adopted you into his family. So that's why Christ says, don't be so troubled. That same fellowship you have with me, you'll have with the father. This is what Christ has done. He's revealed the Father. He's opened the way to the Father. He's given us access to this Father. And we have this access through Christ. So here is the point. God is your Father because the Son is your Savior. If you have Christ as your Savior, then you have God as your Father. But notice something in the Lord's Prayer. We didn't read all of it, but you've probably noticed this before. Maybe you haven't. But it's a really important observation. Notice that there are no Pronouns in the singular in this prayer. You will not see me or my. All you see is our and us. It's all in the plural. That's meant to give you some perspective. Then we pray this prayer. We pray our Father. It's pointing to the fact that you and I are part of the family. We're part of the household of faith. We have God as our father. We have Christ as our elder brother. But we have other brothers and sisters. We have siblings in the Lord. We've become part of a family of God. But each and every one of us have become part of that family in the way that everybody else has. Now, there's only two ways you can become part of a family. You're born in that family or you're adopted in that family. And guess what? You've got two scoops. It's both. It's both for all of us. We're born in this family. We're adopted in this family. We're born again. By the Spirit. Remember what Christ said to Nicodemus in John 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless he is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But that's exactly what's happened to us. We've been born again by the Spirit of God who's given to us a new heart. But we've also been adopted. In this wonderful act of God's free grace where he welcomes us into his family, where he literally transfers us out of that kingdom of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of light. But this kingdom of light is not just a change in status, it's a change of family. Galatians 4.4 said, When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son so that we would receive adoption as sons. We're part of this family. God is our father. But when we pray our Father, it reminds us we not only have a family, we have responsibilities to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
as you open the New Testament, you see all these one another commands, all these things we're told to do with and for each other. And among them are these, to love one another, to serve and to forbear and to forgive and to accept and comfort and greet and welcome and encourage, exhort and admonish and teach and instruct and build up and confess sin to, speak the truth to, live in peace with, be kind to, do good to, show hospitality to, have fellowship with and pray. There's something for all of us in that list of things. But the one thing that absolutely must be true of all of us, besides love, is to pray. To pray with one another. To pray for one another. And I think we need to perhaps feel uh, the weight of this for some people, that for some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all they have. We are literally their family. In my church in Philadelphia, we had a, a young lady who was attending the seminary there at Westminster. She was from Mexico. And when she came to Christ, she was literally physically removed from her household. Until she converted her brother and her father, then she was welcomed back. But it was an amazing testimony of somebody taking a stand for Christ that she was literally all by herself. There was a young lady one time we were dropping off. I was with my family and some of my young kids uh, you know, picked up on the way the conversation went, and they said, why is she so needy? This is another young lady. Said, why is she so needy? And I told my kids, because we are all she has. Her fathers and her mothers, her brothers and sisters, her family, is this church. And she has great needs. That's why she's needy. It's people like that that pray this prayer. And perhaps it impacts them more than impacts us, that we're praying for a family. Sometimes we're isolated in this prayer. That we're never isolated from one another's needs and the need to pray. Even a Christian who is confined and chained in a cell all by themselves, like Paul. Even like Paul. Can pray for the family. And we certainly should be praying for them. We're all alone. That the Spirit would remind them that they're not alone. That they have a family around the world that is praying for them. They have a Savior in heaven who's interceding for them. That they have a Father in heaven who loves them. When we pray our Father, we're reminded we're part of a fellowship. We're part of a family. We pray for each other. We pray with one another. It's not just that God is your father. God is our father. Because Christ is our savior. We have union together in him. Well, we still haven't gotten to all of it, as you can see. It's praying to our heavenly father. And I think it's crucial to see that the Lord's prayer gives us Real perspective. It's the Lord's Prayer that assumes or it builds in us a heavenly mindset from the very get-go. It reminds us from what perspective we need to see our lives and to understand everything. And that as we read this opening statement, it reminds us that our access is not just to the Father. As glorious as is, as I've said so far, our access is not just to the Father, but to heaven. It's to heaven. 
If your father is in heaven, if your savior is in heaven, that means your life is in heaven. It's there right now. It's not just your journey's end. We shouldn't see heaven exclusively as our journey's end. No, you need to understand your life's meaning, your life's purpose, the very center of all that you are, all that you stand for, the very center of your heart. It is in in heaven. That heaven is not just the destination of your person one day. It's a destination of your prayers today. It is a focal point of your faith and your hope and your love. It all hinges upon this. And so it's crucial to see yourself as the Father in heaven sees you today. And it shows us that our Father in heaven, who has welcomed us into his family, is waiting, ready, willing to help. Now, this is important for us, especially when all the world just seems so hard and cold. When no one else, no one else cares. No, no, no one else will listen. No one has time. Feels like no one loves you. But here is the one who is always, always compassionate, always tender, always ready. Here is a father in heaven saying to you, but I love you. I will listen to you as long as you talk to me. I will always accept you. I will stay with you, and he welcomes you into his presence unconditionally and says, ask me, ask me anything. Tell me, tell me all of your concerns. Just pour out your heart with all of your hurts, all of your insecurities, all of your doubts. Confess all of your sins. I want to hear all of it, all of it. And as we do that, we need to remember that we're looking to the Father as he is. He is the God of love. And his heart is wide open to us. So I would encourage you, don't be content to live at a distance from him. Do not be silent. Do not be afraid. Trust him. Trust him in his love for you. But love him in return. Remember the the great commandment. What is the great commandment? It's to love him. And see, John Owen talks about this in communion with God. He says it's not really communion if it's just a one-way street. If it's just acknowledgement, well, he loves me. That's not enough. He wants you to love him. But that means first you have to accept that love. You have to believe in that love and to love him back. That's what communion is. That's what marriage is. That's what fellowship is. That's what real communion is. It's trusting him and loving him in return and not holding back. But that begins by clinging to this this precious truth that your father loves you and he wants you to love him. That means you have to let the light of God's grace and truth into your heart and let it melt away all those doubts that exist there. To become awestruck again and again of just how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. You cannot comprehend it. It's greater than all of you. It's greater than all of your sin. And it's better than life. It means to come and to drink deeply even today of the foretaste that we have of heaven in his word and by the spirit and prayer and to enjoy this infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love that God has for us as a father. And to know that all the father's thoughts about you are thoughts of kindness towards you. All of his plans for you are the things that he is going to cause to work together for your good. 
All these things speak of his love, and so you should seek him with all of your heart, and you will find him always ready, always listening, always accepting. And to know this love, to embrace it, to set all your heart upon it, to be filled with it. Heaven is open to you now. What are you waiting for? Your father is there. Seek him now. What we're saying is that God is our father because heaven is our home. It's our true home. Our Lord said lovingly in John 14, 2, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Christ has promised to return for his church to take each and every one of us, either upon death or when Christ returns the second time and gathers all of his church. And he's going to take us, not just to heaven, but to our Father. We always speak longingly that we get to see our Savior face to face. We should speak longingly that we get to be with our Father. And to see the one who sent his Son into this perilous world of darkness for us. Because you see, family is always about where you belong, where you feel you belong. And we belong in our Father's house. We're his children. We belong to him. And we need to dwell in our Father's house. And Christ is saying, there's a room for you. No, it's more than that. He said, he's preparing a room for you. And that preparation speaks of how thoughtful and intentional this is. That plans are being made by Christ. Everything is being made ready. Think of how personal that is. When you call ahead to home, you've been off at college or some trip, and they say, well, I know what you like. The room will be ready just the way you like it. Think of what this means for our Savior to go ahead of us. So I know what you need. I know what you like. It's going to be just right. That's why he says, that's where I'm going, and that's why I'm leaving. It's for you. And Christ is saying in this that your place is with me. Your place is with your Father in heaven. This is your home. It puts everything into perspective when we pray this prayer. That we see our future in light of this prayer. We see ourselves in light of this prayer. We see our life now in light of this prayer. It shows us what we mean to him. That we belong to him. That he is not content until we are with him. Home in heaven. And so Christ is preparing this, this place for us that's beyond the reach of dangers, beyond the reaching arm of anything in this world that is safe because it's not just in Christ's hands, it's in the Father's hands. And it's Christ who promises us these very things. The same one who's fulfilled all righteousness for you, the one who suffered and died for you, the one who rose for you, the one who rules all things for you. And when that Savior says to you, I am coming again to take you to be with me, you need to believe what he says. You need to believe what he says because he's proven already to you he will do whatever it takes to save you. 
to strengthen you, to protect you, to carry you forward to the very, very end. And if he says this, if I have to suffer on the cross, if I have to rise from the dead, if I have to conquer every enemy and put all things under my feet, all rule, authority, and power in heaven, if I have to shake the heavens and the earth for you, that when I say, do not be troubled and be assured there's a place for you, he means what he says. He's preparing a place for you in heaven with your father. The only question this morning is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Well, if you believe the Son is your Savior, then God is your Father. And heaven is your home. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when the disciples asked Christ, how should we pray? That he answered so specifically and in this practical way. And we cannot mind the mind of Christ and all that he meant by these few words. But you have shown us enough to appreciate much of what he meant and also what he promised. We know this because of what he has done. Well, Father, help us to pray. Help us to pray more often. Help us to pray more fervently. But help us to pray as Christ has taught us and to have this heavenly mindset and to know that the one who reigns from on high is the Father who loves us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.